Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.9, Caligula's Wives. We finally finished covering Livia Drusilla, and have now moved on to her successes in the position of Empress of the Roman Empire. As you can probably tell from the title though, this episode is going to be a little different from the last few. The Emperor Caligula would have four wives over his 30 years of life, and none of them are particularly well covered in the sources. When coupled with the fact that none of them were about for very long, this is why, after six episodes covering one woman, I'm about to spend just one covering four. This means that this episode is necessarily going to contain a bit of a hailstorm of names, so apologies for that in advance. If it makes it easier for you, these women are not hugely important in the general historical context. That's to say, you probably won't need to remember them for future episodes. Before we get going though, I need to thank my newest Patreon supporter, Michelle, who has kindly and generously joined the great band of heroes that I call my patrons. If you would like to join her and the other amazing people who support this show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast, where you can give as little as a dollar a month. If you're new to the show, welcome to the rest of you. Welcome back. They didn't know what they had until it was gone. The reign of Augustus showed the people of Rome that giving absolute power to one man would not necessarily be a disaster. His two successives, though, would show that he was, perhaps, the exception that proves the rule. In the last episode, I talked a little about how, after Livia's death, the reign of Tiberius took a bit of a nosedive. The influence of his snake-like close advisor Sejanus led to a wave of political repression that had not been seen since the fall of the Republic. Sejanus ruthlessly purged, through the medium of treason trials, anyone who was not in his close circle, in an attempt to concentrate all power in his hands. But eventually, that all caught up with him, leading to his downfall, and another round of repression followed, as all the friends of Sejanus now found themselves purged from office. 
Orchestrating this from his palace on the island of Capri was Tiberius, and it was believed at the time, though some historians have disputed it, at least to an extent, that he engaged in some pretty violent and sexually debauched behaviour while on the island. If you want the gruesome details, I suggest you take a look at Suetonius' chapter on Tiberius. When coupled with the general neglect of government and the treason trials, it seems that just about everyone was just waiting for the old man to please just die already so we can get a new, less awful emperor. But of course, the succession to the imperial title was not at all clear. The example Augustus gave was that the title should remain within the Julio-Claudian family. But, just like his stepfather had found, it was not easy for Tiberius to find a suitable heir. Originally, it was supposed to go to Germanicus, but he of course had died in the middle of Tiberius' reign. The next in line would have been his own son Drusus, but he had been murdered of course by his own wife Lavilla on the orders of her lover, Sejanus. This left three options. First was Germanicus's brother Claudius, but the same fiscal handicaps that had prevented him from succeeding Augustus still applied, so he was considered a non-starter. Second was Gemellus, Claudius's nephew and the son of the disgraced Lavilla. And third was Caligula, the only surviving son of Germanicus. Again, following the example of Augustus, who had at least twice before named two heirs, Tiberius hedged his bets and named Caligula and Gemellus as his successors. However, Gemellus would be outmaneuvered in the aftermath of Tiberius's death and forced to commit suicide a little later. So, let's focus on the infamous Caligula and the women who would have the misfortune of marrying him. The first thing that needs saying is that Caligula was not in fact his name. He was officially called Gaius Caesar by his parents, Germanicus and Agrippina Major. He was one of six children born to the famous general and darling of the empire. He had two elder brothers, whose names I won't trouble you with, and three sisters, who sadly you will have to know. Like all the Julio-Claudians, Germanicus and Agrippina had no imagination, so these daughters were called Agrippina Minor, Julia Drusilla, and Julia Lavilla. Now Caligula and his sisters had what can be safely described as a traumatic childhood. They were raised in legionary camps, wherever their father was serving. That incidentally is where he gained the name Caligula, as he used to wander around the camp in an adorable little soldier's uniform, and the grizzled veterans called him Caligula, which loosely translates to little boots. Things were all going rather swimmingly, until their father Germanicus died slash was murdered by Livia and Tiberius. Despite her husband's deathbed pleas, Agrippina refused to let them get away with it, and engaged in a bitter feud with the emperor. This eventually led to her and her two eldest sons being accused of treason and banished. They would all either die of neglect or suicide, never seeing their family again. Caligula and his sisters were then passed around various elderly relatives like footballs. Despite, or perhaps actually because of it, they all forged a very close bond. Perhaps too close, as I will discuss later. While it was pretty crappy for all of them, Caligula had the worst of it, as he was eventually sent into the lion's den, the imperial palace on Capri, when he reached the age of 18 in 31 CE. Somehow, while other perceived threats to the Tiberian regime were being ruthlessly repressed, and the palace itself resembled a dystopian hellscape, at least according to Suetonius, Caligula managed to survive. 
he managed to portray himself as being a great devotee of the ailing emperor, and managed to stay on his good side, and this helps explain why Tiberius named him as one of his heirs, along with Gemellus, who had also been sent to the island. In this period, Caligula got married for the very first time. Now, the facts on this match are extremely murky. The sources vary wildly on the year in which it takes place, from Suetonius claiming it was in 31, to Cassius Dio, who puts it in 35. Modern historians, though, seem to back Tacitus' assertion that it took place in 33 CE, when Caligula was 21. As one might expect, he had no say in the matter. It was all on the orders of the emperor. His bride was Junia Claudilla, the daughter of a former consul. As you may have guessed from her name, she was a member of the Claudii family, though from a less fashionable branch than the one that Livia had hailed from. Her father was a close friend of Tiberius, not to mention a member of his extended family, and therefore this wedding can be seen as a mark of favour to Caligula. Claudilla would never, though, become empress, and so it is not necessary to go into detail on her, which is handy because we know next to nothing about her. We have no idea when she was born. The only fix that we have on her age is that she was of childbearing age in the mid to late 30s CE, so she was probably around the same age as Caligula, as it was unusual to match a man with a woman who was more than a few years older than him. Other than that, all we know is that she died giving birth to a stillborn. The next marriage would come in the year 37, after he became emperor. But before we can get to that, let's talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, shall we? In his excellent biography of Caligula, Alois Winterling sums up how most ancient and modern historians have viewed the reign of Rome's third emperor. Quote, Caligula started out as a tyrannical ruler and degenerated into a monster. He drank pearls dissolved in vinegar and ate food covered with gold leaf. He forced men and women of high rank to have sex with him, turned part of his palace into a brothel and even committed incest with his own sisters. Torture and executions were the order of the day. He removed two consuls from office because they had forgotten his birthday. He considered himself superhuman and forced contemporaries to worship him as a god. He wanted to make his horse a consul and planned to move the capital of the empire from Rome to Alexandria. His biographer Suetonius, to whom we owe most of this information, and other ancient sources have an explanation for this behaviour. He was insane. I would also add that this view has been supplemented by contemporary depictions of Caligula, from the creepily young John Hurt's portrayal of him in I Claudius, which broadly follows the description above, to the completely bonkers performance by Malcolm McDowell in the high-budget kinda porno film Caligula from 1979, which incidentally also starred a young Peter O'Toole, Helen Mirren, and John Gilgood. However, there are a number of issues with this over-the-top image of a diabolical, tyrannical, dystopian nightmare of an emperor. First of all, we don't have a great range of sources for this reign. For example, the relevant sections of Tacitus' annals are missing, so we rely on less reliable writers like Suetonius. Second, most of the information on Caligula comes from Roman aristocratic writers and sources, and they hated Caligula, largely because he hated them. So, not exactly an unbiased bunch. And third, some of it can be put down to stereotyping. Many of the same lurid accusations against him are common to descriptions of Tiberius before him, 
and to so-called bad emperors that followed him, such as Nero and Domitian. This is not to say that Caligula wasn't an awful emperor. He was. I'm also not saying that he was a pretty crappy human being and husband. He was that too, and spades. He was the complete embodiment of how much of a terrible idea it was to put absolute power of the greatest empire in the world into the hands of a psychologically damaged man in his 20s. He seemed to make it his mission to ferociously troll the establishment while throwing out all manner of pork to his supporters amongst the poor in Rome. Good governance wasn't his concern. Revenge, amusement and the accumulation of total and absolute power was. Unlike his two predecessors, he would not pay lip service to the Senate or delegate power to the nobility. He wanted it all. But he wasn't quite the sadistic Ramsay Bolton character that Suetonius would have you believe. Now this episode isn't a biography of Caligula. If it were, it would be considerably longer. But it is important to state from the outset that some of the sources that I will be reading to you, or the books and films that you may have perhaps seen or read, need to be taken with quite a bit of salt. After succeeding Tiberius and taking out his colleague Gemellus in 37 CE, Caligula decided that he needed to get himself another wife. And much like everything that Caligula did, he accomplished this goal in the weirdest, most offensive way possible. At some point that year, he attended a wedding. The groom was Gaius Calpurnius Piso. If that name sounds familiar to you, it should. He was the son of the Piso that had taken on Livia and her friend at the start of Tiberius's reign, and the nephew of the Piso that had committed suicide in the saga following the death of Germanicus. His bride was Livia Oristilla, though some sources call her Cornelia Oristina because they love to make things difficult for people like me. We don't really know anything about Orestilla's family, but given that she was called Livia, probably, it may be that she was somewhat connected to the Julio-Claudian family, but that is pure guesswork. Now, I'm sure you've all been to a bunch of weddings. Many have probably been great, some kind of average, a few somewhat cringy ones, and I'll guess one or two disasters. This one, though, is in its own category of awful. According to Suetonius, Caligula, quote, attended the ceremony himself, gave orders that the bride be taken to his own house, and within a few days divorced her. Others write that being invited to the wedding banquet, he sent word to Piso, who reclined opposite to him, quote, don't take liberties with my wife, and at once carried her off with him from the table, the next day issuing a proclamation that he had got himself a wife in the manner of Romulus and Augustus. In that bit, he is referring to the story of Rome's founder Romulus, who had seized a wife in a similar manner, and Augustus, of course, who had taken Livia while she was still married to her first husband. So, if you'll allow the understatement of the century, this was a pretty nasty thing to do. There's spontaneity, and then there's that. The circumstances of this are murky, as the sources differ in the descriptions of the so-called rape of Obrestilla, which is what this episode has become known by ever since. It isn't clear, for example, whether this took place after the actual wedding took place, or before, or maybe kind of in the middle. Did Piso have to humiliatingly divorce Obrestilla only moments after marrying her, or did Caligula just swipe her hand in marriage at the last moment? The original explanation for why this happened, the Caligula was an insane monster theory, has held strong for a long time, but other explanations have been offered. 
His position at this time was by no means secure. He was also stricken by illness at this period, and so may have acted rationally because of its effects, or was rushed into finding a wife to secure the succession. And there is also that link with Romulus and Augustus. It may not have just been a convenient excuse that he linked his rash decision to Rome's two great founders. It may have been a genuine attempt to put himself on a pedestal with them. Unlike Livia, who had delighted in swapping a noble husband for Augustus, Aristilla was distinctly unimpressed with having been forced to marry Caligula. The sources agree that she and Piso had great affection for each other, and indeed continued to see each other intimately after the wedding had taken place, at great personal risk. It seems that she did not want to be empress, she just wanted the life that she had been promised when she had become betrothed to Piso. The marriage lasted just two months. Caligula quickly tired of Oristilla, whom one imagines made no secret of how much she despised him. Her continuing to sleep with Piso in the years before paternity tests meant that there could be doubts, if she did produce an heir, as to who the father was. That would not do at all. Her and Piso's ordeal, though, was not over even after the divorce, as they were banned from remarrying, despite their obvious wish to do so, and would eventually be banished from Rome, not returning until after the death of Caligula. Okay, so that's two wives down, two to go. After this debacle, Caligula did not remarry for over a year, but the issue of succession was still one that needed resolving. Without a son of his own, he looked to his own family for a successor, and chose, rather unusually, his sister Drusilla. Of all of his sisters, Drusilla was by far his favourite. They had been extremely close growing up, and given the trauma of their upbringing and unforgiving nature of political life in Rome, it's understandable that their bond would have grown ever closer once he reached the throne. Historians at the time suggested, though, that their relationship was a little more than just close, if you know what I mean. Suetonius suggests that he had been sleeping with all of his sisters for years, but that Drusilla had always been his most constant lover, starting when they were children. He goes on to write, quote, Afterwards, when she was the wife of Lucius Cassius Longinus, an ex-consul, he took her from him and openly treated her as his lawful wife, and when ill, he made her heir to his property and the throne. Such a charge has been dismissed by modern historians, especially as it is not unusual for women who have reached the positions of great influence to be accused of reaching it through deviant sexual ways. There is no doubt, though, that the two were extraordinarily close, and so his naming her as his heir is, in a sense, not all that surprising. She would rule alongside her husband and pass the throne on to her children. At least that is, until Caligula himself had more kids. It made all the sense in the world. But Drusilla went the way of so many Julio-Claudian heirs and died unexpectedly in 38 CE. Caligula took the news very badly. He threw the whole empire into mourning, had the Senate confer all manner of honours on Drusilla, greater ones indeed than had even been given to Livia, including deifying her. Her death also seems to mark a turning point in his reign, as Drusilla seems to have been able to exert a degree of control on her wayward brother. After 38, the gloves really came off. For us, though, the most important consequence of the death of Drusilla was that Caligula needed a new heir, and so began to cast about for a new wife. 
Now, most emperors in this situation would take some advice, think about things for a bit, then find a suitable bride from amongst who was available. Not Caligula, though. He once again decided to marry someone else's wife. The unfortunate wife number three was Lolia Paulina. Thankfully, we know a little bit more about her than with the previous two, so I can actually do a brief biography. She was a well-connected woman. Through her father, she was a member of the Lalia family, a relatively new noble family of plebeian origin. Her grandfather had been a member of Augustus's inner circle, who had rose to the consulship in the early years of the empire. Her mother was a member of an old equestrian family that had never risen that high at the ranks of the Senate, but was very well connected all the same, as she had been the first cousin of the Emperor Tiberius. Lolia was born in around 15 CE, and thanks to the early death of her father, had inherited a great deal of money, making her a valuable heiress and therefore sought-after bride. She was also, apparently, a great beauty, having apparently inherited her looks from her paternal grandmother, who had reportedly been one of the most beautiful women in the Roman Empire. The lucky man who won Lolia's hand in marriage was Memmius Regulus, a wealthy man who had reached the rank of consul, and was, at the time, governor of three Roman provinces, but today makes up most of Greece and the Balkans. So, in the early 30s CE, she packed her bags and headed over there to be with her new husband. So how did she end up being married to Caligula in 38? Well, her powerful connections, wealth and beauty are obvious reasons why the emperor would have been attracted to her, though it's actually unclear if he had actually ever met her before. She was also young, and therefore theoretically able to have kids. What is interesting here is that it seems that Caligula didn't steal Lolia away from her husband Regulus. It looks like Regulus offered her to him. It's unclear as to whether he did so willingly or not. Caligula has form in throwing his imperial weight around, and was never shy of putting powerful men's noses out of joint. But on the other hand, it was far from unusual for Roman husbands to transfer wives between each other willingly. One of the major reasons why Regulus had married Lolia was for her wealth and status, but arguably he could gain even greater opportunities with the gratitude of the emperor. It may have been a bit of carrot and stick, we'll just never know. We also have no idea what Lolia's reaction to all of this was, but it goes without saying that she had no input into any of this. It is quite possible that she would have been excited at the prospect of becoming an empress, and Caligula wasn't quite yet as cruel and violent as he would be in the final years of his reign, but equally she must have known that this was a poison chalice, made worse by the fact that she had no power to prevent it. Lolia lasted a little longer than her predecessor had as empress, but not by much. By the summer of the following year, she too was ditched by the wayside. As you recall, Caligula wanted a child to secure the future of his line, and Lolia was unable, in the short period of time in which they were married, to provide him with that. Indeed, she would never have children in her life, though it's fair to say that Caligula could not have known that for sure after barely a year of marriage. Much like with Oristella, divorce from the emperor was not the end of her ordeal, and she was banned from ever remarrying possibly out of him being a bit of a wrong'un, but actually more likely, because as a man continually paranoid about plot against his reign, Caligula worried about the power a rival may gain through marrying a former empress. But this is not the last we're going to hear about Lolia Paulina. Okay, so that's third wife down, just one more to go. 
Just as he had wasted no time after the death of Drusilla in gaining a new wife to bear him an heir, no sooner had he ditched Lolia than he found himself someone else. Aside from the fact that they tended to be already married when he decided to pop the question, the thing that links Caligula's first three wives is they all seem fairly conventional Roman noblewomen. They came from good solid families and conducted themselves in a way that society might expect. The husband may have been a nasty piece of work, but they were pretty normal. This is perhaps why his previous two marriages had not lasted long. They just weren't all that compatible. In wife number four, though, Caligula found a kindred spirit. Indeed, there was another reason for why Caligula had divorced Lilia Paulina that I didn't tell you, but it's probably the most important. He had gotten his mistress pregnant. Now was his chance to get that long-awaited heir. But to make that baby legitimate, he had to marry his mistress. And that is what he did. Melonia Sezonia was born... We have absolutely no idea when. Most of the things that I have read either swoosh past giving her a birth date, or simply say the early 1st century CE. She does seem to have been a little older than his previous bribes, and maybe older still than the emperor himself. Suetonius, in his customary PC way, describes her as being, quote, neither beautiful nor young. We know very little about her family, as it was not one of the more established noble lines. Her mother was the more notable parent, being famed for having had seven children by six husbands, Sezonia being the last of them. Her father was called Melonius and appears to have been a bit of a nobody. It isn't clear how she became known to Caligula, but her uncle on her mother's side had been close with Tiberius, so maybe there's a connection there. Their affair began soon after Caligula's third marriage, and she seems to have become pregnant very soon afterwards. Indeed, she had already had three children by this time by another man, but we don't know anything about them or indeed their father. While Caligula had married Sezonia while pregnant, he didn't officially recognise her as his wife until after their daughter had been born. He named her after his beloved sister, Drusilla. Sezonia is Caligula's most famous and notorious wife. The sources, as we shall see, paint an extremely lurid picture of an unhinged, attention-seeking nymphomaniac, and while we don't have a huge amount of evidence to directly disprove them, they shouldn't be necessarily taken at face value. I've already talked about how Caligula's portrayal is tainted by the hatred that the Roman nobility had of him, and let's not forget that Roman historians love nothing more than to portray a woman as the symbol of everything that was wrong with the current regime. Suetonius gives the following description of Sezonia. He states that, quote, Besides being a woman of reckless extravagance and wantonness, he loved her not only more passionately but more faithfully, often exhibiting her to the soldiers riding by his side, decked with cloak, helmet and shields, and to his friends even in a state of nudity. Putting aside the weirdness of showing off your naked wife to your mates, Caligula does seem to have been passionately devoted to Sezonia and his daughter Drusilla. Sources like to show how evil and awful they all were through the ways through which they showed affection to one another. For example, Suetonius claims that Caligula, when tenderly kissing his wife's neck, would say, quote, Off comes this beautiful head whenever I give the word. He also claims that, quote, He even used to threaten now and then that he would resort to torture if necessary to find out from his dear Sezonia why he loved her so passionately. How sweet? yet incredibly disturbing. His infant daughter also comes in for the same treatment. 
Quote, No evidence convinced him so positively that she was sprung from his own loins as her savage temper, which was even then so violent that she would try to scratch the faces and eyes of the little children who played with her. One of the reasons why Caligula's reign went so comprehensively to hell in the last three years can be put down to his massive overreaction to a series of failed plots against his life, most especially one major conspiracy called the Plot of the Three Daggers. The ringleaders of this were Caligula's two surviving sisters, Agrippina and Lovilla, and the widower of Drusilla. Caligula had always been close to his family, and so this one really stung. His sisters were exiled and their property confiscated, and the other ringleaders were executed. Enormous paranoia set in, with ever crueler punishments meted out for even minor infringements against his majesty, including apparently the method of execution by a thousand cuts, where the victim would be slowly nicked and stabbed over a period of days until eventually would be allowed the release of death. Ugh. Given that members of the senatorial class were often behind these plots, this only confirmed his utter hatred and contempt for them, and so he assembled a new inner circle of people from humbler backgrounds who owed their elevation to him. And one of them was Caesonia, who appears to have been the Livia to his Augustus, though that is really the only comparison that they had with their illustrious forebears. We don't have any particular details of the kind of advice that Caesonia offered her husband, but his advisors are usually described as either being vicious sadists or calculating cowardly yes-men, willing to do anything to stay in the emperor's favour. The closeness of their relationship and the degree to which he trusted her is shown in the aftermath of the breaking up of yet another conspiracy, which involved a father and a son. Here it is related by Cassius Dyer. Quote, when he had ordered Betelinus Bassus to be slain, he compelled Capito, the man's father, to be present at his son's execution. When the father inquired if he would permit him to close his eyes, Caligula ordered him to be slain too. Then Capito, finding his life in danger, pretended to have been one of the conspirators, and promised to disclose the names of all the rest, and he named the companions of Caligula and those whom abetted his licentiousness and cruelty. Indeed, he would have brought many to destruction had he not gone on to accuse the prefects and Callistus and Caesonia, and so aroused distrust. Caligula was an incredibly paranoid man who trusted pretty much no one. He was willing to believe any perceived plot against him, and so for him to come to the conclusion that certain people were innocent of a plot purely because the accuser implicated his wife shows the degree to which he loved and trusted her. It's a pretty amazing thing, and shows what kindred spirits they were. In many ways, though, the ultimate expression of this came a little later in 41. Caligula's paranoia had finally stretched the senior members of the Praetorian Guard, the personal army of soldiers that defended his person, as well as some very powerful senators. They knew that they had to strike first in order to save themselves. And so, late at night on the 24th of January 41, they entered his private quarters and stabbed him to death. But killing the emperor was only part of the job. They wanted the stain of Caligula to be fully expunged, and for that they needed to kill his wife and heir as well. They were too dangerous to be kept alive, as supporters of Caligula could have used them as figureheads to oppose the coup. Imagine what would happen if Sazoni managed to escape, marry a prominent supporter of the former emperor, and raise an army to challenge the new regime. 
No, they both had to go. There were a couple of depictions of her final moments. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that she faced death defiantly. Covered with her husband's blood and knowing what fate was about to befall her, she, quote, stretched out her naked throat and that very cheerfully to him, bewailing her case like one that utterly despaired of her life and bidding him not to boggle at finishing the tragedy that they had resolved upon relating to her. So she boldly received her death's wound, as did the daughter after her. Other sources are far briefer, stating that she was stabbed to death while Drusilla had her head smashed against a wall. The assassins weren't taking any chances. So there we have it. Four wives, three of them emperors, in around half an hour. That's some pretty efficient work. The wives of Caligula are not enormously important to the grand historical narrative, but I think there are a few things that we can take from all of this. First is that once again, it shows just how unimportant a woman's personal view was when marriage was concerned. Livia Rostilla and Lollia Paulina were the victims of the power plays of men who had nothing resembling their best interests at heart. Their only consolation one imagines is that at least they did not share the fate of Caesonia. Second, it underlines the importance placed in this period on a Roman empress giving birth to a son. I don't want to spend the whole rest of this series talking about Livia, especially as I've already spent six episodes on her, but it bears repeating that it's astonishing that she lasted so long as empress despite not giving Augustus a son. Caligula's haste and carelessness in running through wife after wife in search of an heir makes Henry VIII seem caring and patient. It didn't have to be a son, but it need to be of his own bloodline. And finally, we once again have an example of an empress wielding real power here. By giving Caligula a son and sharing a real emotional bond with him, possibly because they were both two pennies short of a pound, Caesonia was able to wheedle her way into the inner circle of one of the most paranoid emperors in Roman history. It goes to show that there was real power to the position of empress, if it was held by a woman who could command the respect of her husband. Next week, we move on to the main beneficiary of the assassination of Caligula, Claudius, the emperor who would order the conquest of the mysterious, wet, miserable islands off the coast of Gaul that I call home. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.